the, the third temple that's going to be built uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, the uh, scripture bears that out in several places. But John in chapter 11 was given a measuring reed to measure the temple, the altar, and the worshipers. And um, uh, so, you know, it, 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 it lets us know that during the tribulation period, there will be a third temple built. And uh, that the Jews will, Israel will again reinstitute their worship and their sacrifices. They haven't had, they haven't had that since 70 A.D., since the temple was destroyed. But that will take place. And um, we can see where those, uh, we're just getting closer and closer to those things. So we know the rapture of the church is very near. We talked about the two witnesses that will prophesy in Jerusalem and will preach in those days how they will be protected by the Lord and uh, against, uh, against those who would try to attack them or those who would try to uh, destroy them and uh, how that they, uh, the Antichrist won't even be able to, uh, to defeat them in any way. They'll have supernatural protection until their ministry is ended. And when their in- ministry is over with, then... Uh, the Lord will allow the Antichrist to kill them both. They'll lay in the streets of in the streets of Jerusalem. The Scripture said for three and a half days, the world will have a party because these two witnesses have tormented them for three and a half years, preaching uh, Jesus Christ, preaching repentance. The Bible said that they prophesied clothed in sackcloth, which indicates that they were preaching repentance and calling people to repentance. They had power to perform miracles. They had power to shut up the heavens. They had power to strike the earth with plagues as often as they would. Uh, And uh, so they were powerful, powerful, two powerful men. But then the Antichrist will have uh, the leeway, be able to kill them. They'll lay dead in the street for three and a half days while the world celebrates. They're going to send gifts to one another. They're going to send uh, Happy Dead Witness Day cards, you know, to one another. They're just going to rejoice and celebrate that these, that these two witnesses are finally out of their hair and out of their way. But for three days, three and a half days, they'll lay there. Uh, dead for three and a half days, but the Bible says that after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God enters them. They stand on their feet. Great fear falls upon the people that sees this. It will be seen nationwide, worldwide on television, satellite television, and a great voice comes from heaven. John said that he heard a great voice coming from heaven saying, Come up here, and they ascend to heaven. Right in front of everybody, God uh, takes them up, raptures them up to heaven while everybody is watching. And man, what an what a awesome sight that has to be. And so um, in that same hour, the Scripture said, when those witnesses were caught up and all the world was watching, there was a great earthquake Verse 13 said that the tenth part of the city fell. The earthquake, uh, there were 7,000 men that were slain by the earthquake. And the remnant that were left were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
And then he said that that was the second woe. The second woe was past, and the third woe cometh quickly. If you'll remember, the three woes are linked to the last three trumpets, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet are the three woes that are pronounced with the sounding of these trumpets. So tonight, we're going to pick up in verse 15 with the seventh trumpet sounding, the, the angel sounding that, uh, that seventh angel sounding that seventh trumpet. And then we'll, we'll finish those scriptures up and jump over into chapter 12 and talk a little bit about the sun-clothed woman that is there in Revelation chapter 12. We'll get as far as we can get with this tonight, all right? Let's have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing tonight on the teaching. Father, we do thank you for your word, and thank you for the opportunity to come together to study the word of God. We do ask you tonight to open up our understanding, open our hearts, open the, uh, the minds and ears of each one of us tonight to hear and to receive the word of the Lord and what the Lord is saying to his church. Teach us what we need to know in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 15 says this, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Here we have the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which is introducing the next series of judgments that is to come, which are going to be the bold judgments. And uh, these bold judgments, actually, we won't get into them, and they're not uh, actually beginning until we get over into chapter number 15. But uh, the seventh trumpet announces these. The third woe will be in this seventh trumpet, and the bold judgments will come out of this seventh trumpet. But it's also, at the sounding of this trumpet, there's also a proclamation of the reign of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the reign of the coming king over the kingdoms of this world. At the sounding of this seventh trumpet, he makes that proclamation and says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. So it's a proclamation. There's loud voices from heaven that are saying this, and it's that proclamation, the fact that Jesus, the Lord, the King of glory, is going to reign over the kingdoms of this world. What an awesome time that is going to be. Now, I just want to throw this in here, that this, this seventh trumpet judgment, this seventh trumpet here in the 11th chapter of Revelation is not the same trumpet as the last trumpet that's recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Now, you know, the, the, the last trumpet, Paul said that at the, at the last trump that, uh, that the rapture will take place. And there's been a lot of people, and there still is, there are a lot of people that teach a mid-tribulation rapture that place this seventh trumpet as being that last trumpet of Paul. The 
pre-wrath teachers, the pre or the mid-trib teachers, teach that this is where the rapture is, the rapture of the saints, the rapture of the church. But we know as we have studied through uh, this book from the very first chapter, we've found that the rapture takes place in in chapter number 4, that the 24 elders enthroned, uh, enthroned around the throne of God are the representatives of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is in heaven. What we're reading here in Revelation 11 and 12, this is just getting into beginning the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. So, you know, those who, who believe and, and, and preach and teach a mid-tribulation rapture, well, they, they stick the rapture here with this seventh trumpet. We are pre-tribulation rapture believers here at Abundant Life. Can I get an amen? At least I am, praise God. Hope everybody else is. Hey, if you want to hang around and go through half of the tribulation, that's fine. I'm going to get out on the first load. Praise the Lord. But, uh, but in 1 Corinthians 15, ta- Paul is talking to the church about the, the rapture of his bride, the rapture of the church. He said that, that the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised, incorruptible. We, we which are alive and remain will be changed. Well, he's talking about the rapture of the bride, but here in Revelation 11, is talk, this is talking about a final series of judgments that are coming on the earth. Now, we as a church, we're looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not looking for the Antichrist, all right? We're not looking for the man of sin. We've, we know from the Scriptures that there is a restrainer that's holding back the man of sin, the Antichrist, until that restrainer is removed. Then shall that wicked one, Paul said, be revealed, and uh, who the Lord will destroy with the brightness of his coming. Well, the restraining force that is holding back this spirit of lawlessness or this man of sin is the spirit-filled church, the Holy Spirit-filled church and the presence of this church in uh, the, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. So I'm not looking for the man of sin. I'm not trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Amen. Is he alive today? Probably so. I believe that in every, I believe that in every generation that Satan's had somebody in the wings that could fill this bill because the devil doesn't know when. I mean, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know when God's going to do all these things. He just knows what, what uh, the plan is, what's going to happen. And I know that he has had someone in the wings and probably does right now. I believe that's how close we are to the rapture of the church is that, yeah, there is probably that somebody somewhere that's being groomed by Satan to step into that place as the Antichrist. But before he can step into that place, the church of Jesus Christ is going to leave this planet via the trump of God, amen, and the rapture of the church. Praise the Lord. So, the kingdoms of this world, he said, are about to become the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what we're reading here is the beginning of the last three and a half years of the tribulation, which the last three and a half years, I took my papers back in my office the other day, but if you remember the timeline that we had, that we had given you, 
that showed the dividing of Daniel's 70th week, that tribulation period, which is going to be seven years. And in the midst, in the middle of that, at three and a half years, um, after that, there's some things going to take place that we'll probably look at tonight that marks the three and a half year mark, the midway part of the tribulation. And that second part, that second last three and a half years is what Jesus referred to as the great tribulation. So at this time, here it says that the kingdoms of the world are about to become the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, all of the world's political, social, cultural, and religious groups, when what we're reading here at this particular point in this, in this midpoint of the, the, of the tribulation, all of these world groups, the kingdoms of this world, will be united together as one under one dictator, under one king, and that will be Satan's Antichrist, who will be that world leader. But here, here, listen, here's the good news, that Jesus Christ will claim his royal rights to the earth at his second coming. There isn't anything that's going to stop Jesus from coming back at that time that he's to come back and take over the kingdoms of this earth. The Antichrist and Satan will think, they'll think they've got it all wrapped up, but Man, it's going to be like you know that old uh, uh, the old cartoon with the, who was that old boy? His curses foiled again. That you know that old that old uh, uh, enemy. He's always thinks he's just about thinks he's got um, you know got it got it down pat, and then he's foiled. And Jesus is going to foil the plans of the enemy at the second coming of Christ. But he will claim. Jesus will claim. This is yet future. Now listen. He will claim his, his rights to the earth at the second coming. But here's the point. He's not, Jesus has not yet taken over the kingdoms of this world to rule them with a the rod of iron. It's yet future. But it's as good as if it had already been done. The victory has already been won, and his rule over these nations is as good as done. That's why it says it the way it says it. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. It's, that's not going to take place at this point in the tribulation, but it's as good as done already. He will end the rule of evil men. Jesus at his return will end the rule of evil men and all the kingdoms of this world will be his. He will rule over the nations with a rod of iron for 1,000 years and on into eternity. Are you hearing me tonight? Hallelujah. And that is as good as done. Nothing's going to change that. Nothing's going to stop that. Nothing's going to prevent that. It is already as good as done and that's why the scripture speaks of it as it has already happened here in this particular point uh, a point of the tribulation that 15th verse where he says that the kingdoms of this of this earth have of this world have become refers to uh, a, a proleptic statement. It's known in the Greek and I am not a Greek scholar but I can read okay? 
But it's a proleptic statement. And it refers to an event, an event that is so certain that it is spoken of as if it had already taken place. How many knows that's the way God speaks? God declares the end from the beginning. In other words, this statement means it's as good as done even though it's still in the future. Let me give you an example of that. 750 years before Jesus was ever born, before he ever, before he ever went to the cross of Calvary, Isaiah said this. He prophesied this. He spoke this by the Spirit of God in Isaiah 53, 5. He said this, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. When Isaiah wrote that Jesus had not went to the cross yet. Amen. But he, but he spoke this, this future event as if had it had already taken place. Why did he do that? How could God do that? Because in the mind of God, that act was a certain act. There was nothing going to stop Jesus from going to that cross and, and paying the price for the redemption of mankind. Paul used the same terminology in Romans 8 and 30 when he talks about us being sanctified Sanctified and justified and glorified, he said that whom he justified, speaking of, of the Lord Jesus, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, we've been justified by faith. Is that not right? We have been saved and justified. We have not been glorified yet. But God speaks of it, or Paul does, the Spirit of God through Paul speaks of it and says, these he also glorified. I'm not glorified yet, but praise God it's as good as done. It's as good as done. One day I'll have that glorified body. Praise God. And so will you. God has already put it in the book. Amen. That's a part of my redemption and a part of your redemption. We are, we are justified. We are sanctified. And we are glorified. I don't have the glorified body yet, but I will have. And you will have. Come on. Amen. So it's a proleptic statement. It's a statement that God uses. It's language that God uses uh, of an event that is, that is so certain to happen that it's spoken of as if it's already taken place. And let me tell you something. When God says something, it's as good as done. When he says it, there is no changing it. Come on, amen. We need to believe that today. The kingdoms of this world have become... The the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. That's what John heard being said from heaven. So, you know, there's a little lesson there for us. If I could take just a little moment here as a just a just a brief side journey. But you know what? In light of that, in view of that, we need to learn to praise God in anticipation of victory that we've already been promised in the Word of God. Because in the mind of God, it's already a done deal. What Jesus did... Listen, if God spoke 750 years before Jesus went to the cross as if it was already done, don't you believe, what do you think about now? That it's already been done. He has been to Calvary. He has uh, took our sins and wounded for our transgressions, been bruised for our iniquities, and took the stripes for our healing. Praise God, it's already happened. It's already a done deal. So, so we need to be able, and everything that, that Jesus did at the cross, and by virtue of being in Christ, 
Being justified and being in Christ, everything that he died to accomplish for you and to make you and me is already a done deal. We can praise the Lord in anticipation of victory that we haven't even experienced or seen yet because if God said it, it is a done deal. Can I get an amen? All right. We can praise him before that, before the enemy is even defeated. Verse 16 says in the 24 elders. I could say more on that. That's, that's probably a sermon in itself right there. The 24 elders, verse 16, who sat before God on their thrones. And you remember who they are. I just mentioned it a while ago. We found out back in uh, Revelation 4 and 5, those 24 elders represent the enraptured saints of God. The church, that's the church in heaven. These 24 elders, they fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The proclamation that was made in heaven in verse number, in verse number 15 triggers praises, praise and worship there in the presence of God, around the throne of God. The 24 elders fall on their faces and they are worshiping the Lord and thanking and praising God for the fact that Jesus will reign, that he will reign over the kingdoms of this earth. And they know by this proclamation and this takes place in the, in the midpoint of the tribulation. And they know that that proclamation means that Satan's days are numbered from that point on. Those 24 elders, the church in heaven, fall on their faces and worship God. My Lord, we ought to be able to do that tonight, to fall on our face and worship God because I'm telling you, Satan's days are numbered, ladies and gentlemen. We're getting closer and closer to it every single day. Hallelujah. They fall on their faces and they worship him. He is the Lord God Almighty. We give you thanks, they said, O Lord God Almighty. He is the all-powerful God. There's nothing impossible with him, too hard for him. He can do anything. And so they're worshiping him because they know as the almighty God, there's no power, no king, no nation, not the Antichrist, not Satan himself. Nothing can stop him from reigning on this earth. It is a done deal. I don't want to belabor this point, but we want to get a hold of that. It is as good as done, and Satan cannot do anything to thwart that plan of God. They said he, they worshiped him who is. They worshiped him who is and was and is to come. He is God alone. He is the eternal God. He always has been. He always will be. He's the first and the last and the alpha and the omega. And he is the great I am. Hallelujah. And he will reign on this earth. Praise God. Now. Listen, by his great power, it tells us here that by his great power that Jesus will conquer. The Antichrist will conquer Satan, which the Antichrist will be controlled by the devil, by Satan himself. And that Jesus will usher in his kingdom and reign on the earth. Verse 18 says, you know, this, here this, is causing, this proclamation is causing rejoicing in heaven. 
Heaven's praising God. But look at verse 18, what happens on earth. And the nations were what? Angry. The nations were angry. Well, they just got the same room to get glad in, don't they? <laughs> the nations were angry. And your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So what causes rejoicing in heaven ignites anger on earth. And that, that word anger doesn't mean that it's just a momentary fit of temper. But this word that's used here for anger is a deep-seated, ongoing hostility. It's a burning resentment against God. And that's what we see here in this Scripture, but that's what we see in the world today. Isn't that right? There's a deep-seated resentment. Even seems like more so today than it ever has been. Just that deep-seated hatred, resentment toward God and toward those who are good and toward those who are following the Lord. It's an angry, rebellious spirit. So these people here, as we see, are not repentant, but they're, they're, they're holding a hostility against God. They're angry and bitter because God's interfering with their lifestyle. God's interfering with the things on this earth. They don't want anybody telling them what to do, especially they don't want God telling them what to do, and they're not willing to submit to His rule. The idea of these people in, in, in this particular day is kind of the same, um, the same idea that people have today. Well, you know, who does God think He is? And they, they say that about Christians. If you try to tell somebody that they need to change their life or they need to live right or they need to give the heart. Well, you know, it's like, well, who do you think you are? Who, who you are judging me? Well, nobody's judging anybody, but I do know this. People that don't know Jesus Christ are lost. People that don't know the Lord, not born again, is not going to heaven. I'm not trying to judge anybody, but there's just that spirit and that rebellion today that mankind wants his own way. And their attitude is, leave me alone. They're angry with the things of God and concerning the things of God. The psalmist wrote about it in Psalm 2. The heathen raging and the people imagining a vain thing. And they're trying to throw off uh, the rule of the Lord and, 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 and the things of God. But his his wrath and his judgment is coming. And that's what he says here. He says that you sh he said that, that, that the, the, your wrath has come. His judgment and wrath has come. And he said that, that God is going to destroy the last part of that 18th voice, verse, voice, that voice, okay? The last part of that verse says that he should destroy those who destroy the earth. Amen. Those who destroy the earth. That word means those who are corrupting the earth, polluting the earth, defiling the earth, will be destroyed through the judgments of God and through Armageddon. And when he talks about, he, when he talks about those who are corrupting, polluting, and defiling the earth, he's not talking about, he's not talking about uh, pollution, you know, He's not talking about he's not talking about climate change here, ladies and gentlemen. 
Are you, are you hearing me? He's not talking about environmental issues and problems. He, he's, not, he's not, you know, it's climate change and, and fossil fuels and all of that is not what's destroying the earth. Let me tell you what's destroying the earth. You want to know what's destroying the earth today? I'll tell you what's destroying the earth. Sin and corruption and ungodliness and the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rejection of the Word of God. That's what's destroying the earth. And that's what's bringing the judgment of God upon the earth during this time of tribulation. Amen. It's going to be bad after this age of grace is gone and the church is taken out. But notice this. He said that there are those, though, uh, who, who serve the Lord. And he said he's going to reward. You will reward your servants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name. Those who serve God and fear God, the saints of God, the redeemed of the Lord, are going to be rewarded. Now, you make up your mind. I don't know. Which, which one of these would you like to pick? Huh? And that seems like a no-brainer to me. Amen. Would you rather be destroyed by God or rewarded by God? Well, that's, you know, that's just kind of like he told Israel, you know, I set before you life and death and blessing and cursing. And then he said what? Choose life so that you and your seed and your children may live. Well, he's setting that before everybody. Nobody has to be destroyed. Nobody has to go to hell. Nobody has to be lost. Jesus has paid the price on Calvary for everybody that will, who serve will to come and take Take of the water of life freely, but those who reject him will go through this time of terrible tribulation and the wrath of God. But those who fear the Lord, his saints, are going to be rewarded. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about uh, a judgment that is coming, but this is not... This is this judgment that he speaks of here. He says in verse 18 that, it, that it's... Um, the time of the dead that they should be judged and you should reward your servants, the prophets and his saints. This is not talking about the white throne judgment. And we'll get into that white throne judgment when we get to Revelation chapter 20. How many know there's more than one judgment? You know, it's not. A, people think about the judgment of God and our judgment day. And we talk about judgment day that every human being, everybody is just going to all be before God. And then he's going to point at you and say, well, you're saved and you're not. You're going to heaven and you're not. And that's not the way it's going to be. Amen. When you, when that, when you go, when you, when you get to heaven, when you get to heaven as a believer, whether you go by the way of the grave or by the way of the rapture, you're not going to get to heaven and then God's going to let you know whether you can get in or not. You see those cartoons, you know, and stuff of, you know, I don't know where they ever got St. Peter at the pearly gate, but they got Peter at the pearly gate and the, the people standing there and he's deciding who goes in and who don't. No, because let me, let me tell you this, a person that is not saved, that is not born again, that does not know Jesus Christ, when they die, they'll never see those pearly gates of heaven. Amen. They're, they're, they'll not be there to be, to be told whether they can go in or not. And there are religions that do teach that, that you don't really know 
that you don't really know whether you're going to be allowed in heaven or not until after you die. And then you'll get there, and then God will let you know whether you can go to heaven or not. And if, 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 you've, not, if you've not just come up to par, he'll say, well, you'll have to go to this other place and be purged from your sin. And then after that, then we'll see about letting you. That, none, of, none of that's in the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. None of that's scriptural. None of that's in the Word of God. We're either saved or we're not. We're either going to heaven or we're going to hell. And hopefully everybody here tonight is right with the Lord and ready to go to heaven. Amen. You ready to go to heaven tonight? But no, there is a great white throne judgment that will take place in Revelation chapter 20. That's at the end of the millennium when, uh, when the, the, the unsaved dead will be resurrected and stand before the judgment of God, the judgment of Christ there at the white throne. But the, that, that judgment, there won't be a Christian there. There won't be a saint judged at that judgment. That will be for the unsaved. But there will be a judgment for you and I as believers. And it's called the judgment seat of Christ. The beam of judgment. Paul said in Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That judgment ladies and gentlemen is not to determine whether you get to go to heaven or not. You're already in heaven. That judgment seat is what's taking place here. It takes place in heaven. While during after the rapture, during that seven year tribulation period while hells broke loose on the earth the saints will stand before the beam of judgment of Christ in heaven and be rewarded for our faithfulness and the life that we've lived here for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when we will receive our crowns. That's when we will receive our our, our rewards for everything that we have done. Every act of devotion to Jesus will be rewarded by the Lord Jesus. And let me tell you, there's nothing too small that you do for the Lord if you're doing it in the right motive. There's nothing too small that you can do that is going to be missed by Jesus. Everything's recorded. Everything's written down. Praise God. And you will stand there and be rewarded for what you've done for Jesus. Well, what if I hadn't done nothing? <laughs> well, amen. Yeah, I mean, you're, you still get to go to heaven, but no rewards. I don't want to be there. He said you'd be re rewarded for even giving a cup of cold water to a, to a disciple in the name of the Lord. He doesn't miss a thing, Jesus doesn't. So this is a time where his saints will be rewarded. The saints and the prophets are going to receive the rewards from the Lord. We've got to hurry up. Verse 19. Then the temple was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquake, and great hail. You know, chapter 11 opened last week when we began this chapter. Chapter 11 opened with the temple on earth, and now it closes with the temple in heaven. What was seen there, what John saw that was the temple of God in heaven, it was the heavenly temple. This is the temple in heaven that the pattern was given to Moses uh, to build the temple 
or the tabernacle on the earth. Everything that was in that temple in heaven, God gave Moses the pattern and said, build everything according to this pattern. So the tabernacle, when he's showing the temple here in this verse, uh, in, in, in the tabernacle seen in heaven, that tabernacle and that temple of Israel um, was, was there. And it said that, that even... What it say? That the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. This is the true ark, the real ark. This is the ark in that temple in heaven, which the ark of the covenant that was in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple was patterned after. It's, that was a copy of the real one. The real one's in heaven. What happened to that ark? Brother Jim, what? <laughs> Amen. That, you know, where is, where is that? Indiana Jones never found it. Praise God. <laughs> where is it? There's a lot of speculation where it is. We're not going to go into that. I don't know. I don't know where it's at. Uh, different, different Bible scholars and teachers have different ideas on where the ark is. There's some that believe that, and, and some that have even said that they've that that it's that it's under some underground. Uh, um, tunnels that are under the temple, the temple mount there in Jerusalem, that it's hidden back there. I don't know. Maybe it is. Uh, it's it, probably not. If, if, if it's found, I don't know. Maybe they'll bring it out when the, the third temple's built. But whether it is or not, that, that second temple functioned without that ark. It was gone during Solomon's, um, during the, when the Babylonians came in. That rebuilt temple functioned without that ark. So I guess the third temple could as well. So I don't know. There's a lot of speculation on where the Ark of the Covenant is. A lot of theories nobody really knows. So I'm just going to leave that right there, okay? But everything here that we're seeing, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, everything that's being shown from heaven here is, is Jewish in relationship. The temple, the Ark, all of this speaks of Israel and not the church. Are you hearing me? Everything he's showing is speaking of Israel, not the church. Under the new covenant, we don't have a temple that we worship in. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have an ark of a covenant. Under the New Testament, the new covenant, what's the temple of God under the new covenant? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives and dwells in us. He's not living in a building made by hands, all right? So what this is saying to us, that this is all Jewish. God's dealing with Israel, the truth. Tribulation period, this time is the time of Jacob's trouble. He's dealing with Israel here, not the church. The church is in heaven. And judgment and, and chastisement is coming upon Israel because they have turned against what the temple and the ark represent, which is their Messiah and their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When they crucified him, when they rejected him, he said to them, your house has, is left unto you desolate. And it has been all this 2,000 years. And they're going to be judged for that. They're going to be dealt with for that in this tribulation period, but at the end of this tribulation period, those Jews that are left, all of Israel will be saved. Can I get an amen? Praise God. And there were lightnings, and there were lightnings, noises, thunders, earthquake, and a great hail showing judgments coming. Now let's go just a little bit here into chapter 12, and uh, then we'll dismiss for tonight. Is everybody okay? It's almost 8 o'clock, so 
Revelation chapter 12 begins, begin, this literally begins the second half of the tribulation. Here we are in the midpoint. And this 12th chapter of Revelation deals with several great things. When you're reading through it, there's the repetition of the word great. There's a great sign in heaven in verse 1. There's a great red dragon that's talked about in verse 3. There is great wrath that comes in verse 12. And there's a great eagle that is spoken of in verse 14. Now I want us to look here at verse number 1. Now here John has seen this, this, the temple, the ark, all this. And now he says, verse 1 of chapter 12, that a great sign appeared in heaven. A great sign. And he said, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, there's, there's three, different, three different characters we need to identify in this twelfth chapter of Revelation. And the first one here, if we take them in order, the first one would be this woman who is clothed with the sun, has the moon under her feet, and a garland of 12 stars on her head. We need to, 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 um, to identify who is this woman. We know this is symbolic. It's, she's, she's representing something. This is not literal, but this is symbolic. And there are so many, there are several different ideas of who this woman and child are. And uh, so the correct identification of this woman is crucial as we go on in this chapter. Let me say, first of all, that this woman, this sun-clothed woman, is not, listen, is not the Virgin Mary. Now, there is a church that does teach that, that this is Mary. A large group that belongs to that church teaches that this is Mary, but this is not Mary. Mary did give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, but she does not fit the rest of the description that we see of this woman here later on in this chapter uh, in, in Revelation. Mary also, when she gave birth to the Lord Jesus, she gave birth to Jesus on earth and not in heaven. This sun-clothed woman's giving birth, this vision he's seeing this woman in heaven. Do you see that? Amen. So it's not Mary. And uh, there's probably other things we could get into to, to uh, prove that point. But that's not who this is. Secondly, there are those to set that say, that they, they interpret this and say that the sun-clothed woman is the church. But she is not the church. Because if this sun-clothed woman were the church, then this would have the church giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church doesn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gives birth to the church. Come on. Amen. God, God used Jesus and what he did on the cross to birth the church. Amen. When you, when you read the Bible, you go back to the book of Genesis, and where did, where did Adam's bride, the first Adam, where did Adam's bride come from? Does everybody know? Maybe I need to go back and start in Genesis. Amen. <laughs> Amen. The, the, Adam's bride came from where? From his, from his side, right? God put him to sleep, uh, did a little operation there, took a rib out of the side of Adam, Adam, closed it up, and from that rib he made Eve, which was 
Adam's bride. Well, the bride of Christ, Jesus is the last Adam, and the bride of Christ, which is the church, also comes from the side of Jesus. Because on the cross, when he died on Calvary, his side was pierced, and from his side flowed blood and water, the same fluids that are flowing at birth. And it was there that the last Adam birthed the church, his bride. Amen. So the so this woman is not the church this woman would not be but wouldn't the church doesn't give birth to Jesus Jesus gives birth to the church there's even one there's even one uh, church group religious group I guess I should say cultish group that claims that the founder of their of their movement was this sun clothed woman um, anybody ever heard of Mary Baker Eddy Mary Baker Eddy was the founder of the Christian science movement and she she claimed that that she was this sun clothed woman, and the Christian Science Church was the man child that she gave birth to. How ridiculous is that? That's why I say, you know, we can't just pick a verse out and just make it mean anything we want to. It's got to be scripture has got to be interpreted by scripture. Okay, so it, this is not the Christian Science Church. It's not the Virgin. Mary, it's not the church. This woman, who is this woman? Who is she? Well, I'll tell you who she is. She is national Israel. This woman is the nation of Israel. The church is, is the bride of Christ in the New Testament, but if you read the prophets of the Old Testament, you'll find in the Old Testament that Israel is referred to as the wife of Jehovah. So this sun-clothed woman represents the nation of Israel. Let's go to the book of Genesis. Let me give you some scripture from the book of Genesis. This would be the law of first mention. If you want to know what something means, let's see what it, where it was first talked about. In the book of Genesis, you remember... You remember when Joseph, you know, he was hated by his brothers. His dad made him coat of many colors. He was favored by his father. And uh, Joseph was the favorite of Jacob, his father. And his brothers hated him. You remember that? And Joseph had some dreams. And he dreamed and he told his brothers, which he should, probably shouldn't have done that. But he told his brothers, he said, oh, I had this dream. We was all out in the, we was out in the field gathering our sheaves. And, and he said, uh, all of your sheaves, your piles of sheaves, stood up, all the sheaves stood up, and your sheaves bowed down and did obeisance to my sheaf. Boy, it made them mad. We're not going to bow down to you, they said. Well, then Joseph had another dream, and uh, there in Genesis 37, and he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers, and he said, I've dreamed another dream, and this time in this dream, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told this dream to his brothers, uh, to his father and his brothers and his father Jacob rebuked him and said to him what is this dream that you have dreamed shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down on the earth before you notice Jacob Jacob when he interpreted this dream he likened the himself 
himself and uh, the mother and the brothers to the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, Joseph being the 12th star. Who, who are those brothers? Who, who are those, those sons of Jacob? Jacob, whose name was changed to what? Israel. Amen. And those 12 sons of Jacob, the patriarchs were what? The 12 tribes of Israel. And it was through those sons that the nation of Israel came. Amen? Is that right? And so here Jacob even, even, even um, identifies this dream of Joseph, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as being Israel. So we know that this pertains, Joseph's dream pertains directly to Israel. Israel gives birth to the one who will rule in righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ was birthed through by the Virgin Mary, yes, but in the nation of Israel, through Israel, from and from the tribe of Judah. Is everybody clear? Amen. So Jesus came from Israel. And now notice this. In verse number 2, okay, so we've established the... Um, the identity of the sun-clothed woman. This symbolic woman is the nation of Israel. And the Bible says that she, verse 2, is being with child, and she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Notice verse 5. Jump down to verse 5. And she bore a male, male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now notice, this, the, this woman is in, in, in the throes of travail and childbirth. And she brings, she gives birth to a male child, the scripture says, who will rule the nations. This one, who is this one? Who is this one that will rule all nations. And it said that this child is also caught up to God uh, and to his throne. So who is this one that will rule all nations and who ascended to heaven? And there are different, uh, different ones that believe different things, but the majority of everyone that I've studied after, and I agree with this from the, from, uh, the studying of the Scriptures, that I believe that, that it is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is birthed through the nation of Israel, given to uh, the world through Israel, and Jesus was the seed of the woman that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Now listen to what Paul says in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. Romans 9, 4 and 5. He says, Who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants? Now he's telling all the blessings of of the Jewish people. He said these Israelites have, to them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And then in verse 5 he said, and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is overall and eternally blessed of God. So, we conclude that the woman is Israel, the male child that she's giving birth to is Jesus, and Jesus, you know, he was crucified, he was raised from the dead, he ascended on high, he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he will return one day to rule the world with a rod of iron in the millennial kingdom. 
Is that right? Revelation 19.15, and we'll get there one of these days, but in Revelation 19.15, at the coming of the Lord, in that 19th chapter on that white horse, it says, out of his mouth, speaking of Jesus, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So that kind of seals the deal for me. Okay? Now, there's one more character that we want to describe, and then we'll go home because we're out of time. Verse 3. See if you can figure out who this is. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Anybody got any idea who that might be? I think that's pretty, pretty much a given, isn't it? Amen. This red dragon is Satan. He's red, which stands for bloodshed. He's the motivating force behind all the bloodshed in history. Satan is. He's a, Jesus said he is a murderer, was a murderer from the beginning. He has seven heads, ten horns, and we'll get into more of this in um, this symbolism in Revelation chapter 13. But the seven heads and the ten, the seven heads refer to the seven kingdoms that persecuted Israel until John's day. There were seven kings and seven kingdoms that persecuted Israel, and he, they were number one was Egypt, then it was Assyria, Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Grecians, and the Romans. And those seven heads represent those seven kingdoms that tried to destroy. Israel, God's people. The ten horns that are on the heads of this dragon. Seven heads and ten horns. The ten horns represent a ten-nation confederation that will emerge from the old Roman Empire territory under the Antichrist. That old, all the territory that was, that was governed by Rome will be the area where those, there will be ten nations that will be a confederation that will give their power over to the, the Antichrist, to the beast, and he will rule over those nations. The seven crowns refer uh, to the, the fact that Satan controlled these ten nations and these kingdoms and these kingdoms that persecuted Israel. But then it said that his tail drew a third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. I think we all understand what he's referring to here. What John is seeing was the fall of Lucifer and his rebellion against God when uh, he led a third of the angels with him. and They were cast out of heaven. Are you all familiar with that story? Satan was an anointed cherub. He was a mighty angel of God. Uh, according to Ezekiel, he had timbrels and ta tabrets and tabrets and pipes that were in him. He was a worship leader. He was a singer. He was a praiser. He was holy. He was righteous. He was perfect. Lucifer was in all of his ways until the iniquity was found in him. Lucifer was the chief. He was the chief of all the created beings in heaven. That anointed cherub. He's one of four angels that is named in the scripture which is Michael, Gabriel, Lucifer, 
and Abaddon, the angel of the bottomless pit. And so we know that he was a mighty angel of God. But he rebelled against God. And when he did, and you could read about it in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, when he did, he seduced and led a third of the angels of God with him in that rebellion. This is the third of the stars. And angels are referred to as stars in the Word of God. This is a third of the stars of heaven that were thrown down to earth with Lucifer. He was a great angel, but he fell and took a third of the angels with him. But I always like to think, well, if he only took a third, that means there's two-thirds that's still with us, and there's more that be with us than there are that be against us. God's still got more than there are, uh, more good ones than there are bad ones. Come on, amen? Praise God. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And it's always been Satan's attempt to annihilate Israel. That's been his attempt to annihilate the Jewish people. To annihilate Israel is an overriding theme throughout the Bible and throughout history. Satan used Cain and Pharaoh, Haman, Herod, Hitler, and others to do their best to destroy the people of God. To stop the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, from coming. And we see here why the Jews have been perpetually persecuted. And why there has been so much and still is anti-Semitism in the world today. That Satan so hates the Jewish people because God raised them up. To bring the Redeemer, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would destroy and defeat Satan and his purposes. God called Abraham and called this nation and gave that promise to Abraham that in you all the nations and peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Then he called and narrowed it down to David and made the promise that it would be through David, through his seed, through his lineage that the Messiah would come and Satan did everything he could to destroy the people of God. Why did Israel you ever wonder why they were always going into idolatry? Why they were always going to the evil and ungodliness? Why? Why was Satan working on them so much? He wanted to destroy that godly righteous seed to prevent the Redeemer from coming. That's why Satan hates Israel and it got to the place one time in Israel, one time where it came down to only one boy that was left that was in that lineage of the throne in that, in that, in that godly lineage and God preserved and spared him. Amen? But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. He did everything he could. He did everything he could to stop Jesus from coming. And he couldn't do it. He failed miserably. Come on, amen. Hallelujah, he failed miserably. And he's still doing everything he can today. He wants to destroy and annihilate the the people of God, the Israelite people, the Jewish people. He wants to destroy and annihilate them. And we'll get into this next week. But he but he can and he will come close to doing that. Two thirds of them will die. 
during the tribulation. A third will come through the fire and be refined. But God is going to have a people, and Israel is going to be saved. And they are going to be the chief and the premier nation on this earth. Yeah, little old Israel. God is going to restore them again. Amen. Satan will not have his way. He'll not do it. He's a defeated foe. I'm just going to stop right there. And... uh, We'll just, we'll just pick up next week and finish this 12th chapter, okay? So I hope you got something from this. I know, you know, some people say, well, I don't know. Why do I need to know all that? Well, I don't guess you have. You don't have to need to know it to be saved, but it's, I just like to know what's going to happen, how, how God works it all out to defeat the enemy and Jesus wins. Praise God. I've re- you've heard that old saying, read the back of the book, we win. That's it. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We pray you will just hide this word in our heart that, Lord, we'll be closer and stronger to you, in you, than we've ever been. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Have a great week, everybody. Enjoy your week in the Lord. See you all Sunday morning, 1030.